They are humans that have not been raised well, that have been kicked, that have been raped, that have been left outside, that have been neglected, that have been maltreated. Like these are the people who are committing most of these atrocities in our world. They haven't healed. So hurt people, hurt people, healed people, healed people. Hurt people, hurt people. Healed people, healed people. We have to get rid of religion. I'm amazed by how much people know about religion. Doesn't matter if it's your religion, another religion, whether you believe it, whether you don't, whatever. People know all of this stuff. And then you ask them the basic biology questions, basic evolution questions, basic, hey, what three species are we most closely related to? What? We know so little about our own bodies. We know so little about our we own bodies. We know so little about our own bodies. So if I were to go back and do a podcast and just tell you about placebos, these are probably the five things that I would want the average person to understand about placebos, okay? So number one, it's a system, not an entity. Number one, it's, it's a, a system, system not, not an entity. So does that mean like a process of lots of biologically interconnected things happening all at once instead of it just being one single isolated event? Yes. Number two, it's all about adaptation. Number two, it's all about adaptation. So that means that things change, they don't just stay the same? Yes. And then number three, it's hyper-social. Number three. It's hyper, 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 hyper social. So that means that culture and social influences can create placebo effects in my body? Yes. And then number four, placebos work, period. Number four, placebos work, period. So that means that placebos actually work? Yes. Period. And anyway, that's my fifth thing. That's my last thing. You can placebo and nocebo yourself all day long. Number five. You, you can, can placebo, placebo yourself, yourself all day long. Wait a minute, so is that kind of like placebo-bation? No. no. Yes. This is Infants on Thrones. Baby steps. Who wants someone to preach to? The philosophies of men. I like magical toys. Who wants religion Mingled with humor. I don't believe in them. There will be many willing to preach to you the philosophies of men mingled with humor. We are evolving. Baby steps. You can buy anything in this world of money. the good in everything look for the people who will set your soul free it always seems impossible until it's done look for the good in everyone all right welcome back to infants on thrones i'm glenn ostland and this is episode 821 Increasing Emotional Intelligence and Mental Health by Placeboing Yourself All Day Long with Chelsea Shields. And I mean, you don't have to placebo yourself all day long, and you don't have to do it with Chelsea. I'm just saying that if you wanted to, you probably could. Because I am dating, I am there to make you feel good. We are there to make each other feel good during that three minutes. Or however long it might take you. So yes, today you'll be hearing once again from Chelsea, who I sat down with last week and had this wonderful conversation. I I just love this discussion. I don't know if there's anything more important to me than this message 
about the placebo effect because the way that it shows us how our beliefs and our expectations of the world, of ourselves, of everything, create our lived experience in so, so, so many different ways. And it's just always fun to talk to Chelsea. So let's just get right to it, shall we? All right, Chelsea. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. Do, do you do you exist outside of Infants on Thrones for me? <laughs> do you like exist in the real world? A whole big life. Yeah. <laughs> cool but you have some loyal fans and i love all your people so it's exciting to be back we've changed oh. a lot since then huh oh yeah 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 and it's it, so i i was telling you before we started recording but i've been doing this reflections series and so this is going to be kind of like unofficially part five of a four-part uh series that we did before that's just kind of a review of some of the things that we had talked about at different times but i didn't until I went in and really looked at it, I didn't realize how many episodes of Infants on Thrones you were a part of. Do you have any idea, like the number? Oh, I would probably say five or six. Okay, how about 16 or 17? Really? Yeah. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah, like there there was one where we talked about uh, garments. I had you come on for like a couple of listener essays. Like there was one listener essay about death that was really fascinating. There was one about nostalgia. And I remember in that one, and one of, yeah, I think it was the nostalgia one where, where somebody was asking, like, when I leave the church, now I don't have, like, I, I used to know where to go to get answers to all of my big questions, but now I don't trust any of that. And so we had a conversation around that. We, we did an interview with Margaret Toscano. And um, then there was like this one called uh, Dr. Science and the Wonderful world oh, of where we had that guy but anyway yeah you were on you were on a, a significant amount and and as i've been listening back to these episodes i've realized what an impact you had on me i mean i didn't even mention the the era or the infants on feminist episodes that you were a part of too but such a huge impact on on me so many things that you said that really have stuck with me over the years and I, I always felt like we were kind of uh, aligned in a lot of our sensibilities anyway with your cultural anthropology background, my folklore yeah. background, just kind of like some basic understanding of the world that's similar. But um, I'm really happy to have you back on. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So I wanted to start off with a, with a little kind of silly quiz because that's how we started our very first one together. So I've got some multiple choice questions and then some true and false questions. And the first one is Indian food or Peruvian food. Oh, you'd pick the worst too. Those are my top two Peruvian. Love Peruvian. nice. Okay, I that's love good. Peruvian every time I can get Peruvian. Me too. What Lomo now? What? Saltado. We'll say that again. Lomo saltado. Yes, right. And uh, have you had it in Peru? Have you been to Peru? I have never been to Peru. So I I used to travel there for business and. Uh, What's it called? Chirimoya uh, is a fruit. Have you ever heard of chili chirimoya? No. Oh my gosh, they they make they make this just delicious mousse. But I I haven't been able to find it anywhere in the states. Um, 
but yeah, having ceviche and oh, I uh, love Peruvian pollo saltado yeah. and just oh my gosh, you know what they do with their ceviche that's different than other Central and South American ceviches? What's that? So the Peruvians are famous because they have this thing called the leche de ti- uh no la sangre de tigre, like the blood of the tiger. Uh huh. And what they do is they take the ceviche from the night before that's just kind of left over, just the bits, and they they blend it up. Oh. And it becomes the base of the new ceviche the next day. Oh. It's like an internal starter, the way like our sourdough is an internal oh, starter. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. They're famous for that. Cool. Yeah, I didn't know that. All right. So you can go with both Indian food and, and Peruvian food with a slight uh, preference for Peruvian. That's acceptable. All right. Uh, the next one, Marvel versus DC. Ugh. I know. You don't care about either one of them, do you? Ugh. Uh, I'm trying to think of like something feminist I could say in replace of both of both of them. <laughs> a league of their own. No, just kidding. I don't. Know. <laughs> um, ugh, neither. All right, that's an acceptable answer too, Chelsea. And you know, I've I've since you brought feminism into it, I recently watched the Ms. Marvel uh series. That was phenomenal. That, that was so good. Did you watch it? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That was, I loved that. Uh, and just the, the things that I learned about Islamic culture through that. And Islam? you know, wasn't it? Were, or, were, were they Muslim? Uh, Jewish. No, not in Ms. Marvel. Cause they, cause it's like, they talk about Pakistan oh, and the India. Miss Maisel. Oh, Miss Maisel. <laughs> yeah, they're Jewish. The marvelous Miss Maisel. Yeah. The whole time I'm thinking of Miss Maisel, you're talking about Miss Marvel. Yes, yeah. I know what you're talking about. I know exactly the young actress you're talking about. Yeah. I love this story. I haven't seen it yet. Okay. I, 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 I really liked it. And I know a lot of trolls on the internet uh, trashed it because it was too woke or whatever. But, you know, that's kind of the environment we're in right now, isn't it? Well, I shouldn't say yuck. Like, I go to all the movies. I watch. Yeah. I like storytelling. It's yeah. like going to the campfire and laughing your butt off right. with your ancestors. Like, that's what we do, right? Yeah. But, you know, I, you know, beyond. Did you like the Eternals? I, it's all right. Okay. Like I think we could do better storytelling. I, I, we really can, and we had such a good like cast, and I don't know. Yeah. Okay. To me, a story is what captures your heart. Like you know this, you're a myth teller, right? So sure. the story is what captures your heart and stays with you long after. And there's such well written stories. Yeah. That when you get to that big blockbuster, mm. it's about like shoot scenes, and this actor has to have this much screen time, and. Yeah. It just becomes so um, superficial. It feels like I'm on social media again. It feels mm. less real. It feels yeah. less like a real heartwarming story that catches you by surprise and like sucks you in. Okay. All right. Okay. Sorry, ne- next. Way too long. <laughs> oh, that's all right. That's what we do. I mean, it's we could have a whole podcast out of these uh, <laughs> questions. All right. So this one will be easier for you. Sativa versus indica. No question. Sativa every day, all the time. Okay. See, I'm just the opposite. Uh, Indica is my go-to. And I okay. think because half my job is research, and I need my, I need to be really focused. I need my brain to be on. Yeah. Like I need, I really can't, you know, be on anything. Mm. But the other half of my brain is creative. I'm mm. literally coming up with brand names that yeah. don't exist so that I can own the trademark. So it has to be something 
completely original, right? And I think that when I talk to musicians and artists and we talk and like stoners that I hang out with, yeah. like all of us do something creative and all of us are on sativa when we yeah. do that. Yeah. And it like helps us kind of tap into like a different creative power or maybe I'm super atheist. So the way I explain it is it helps me focus my brain in new ways that I can't do without that sativa. Yeah. Do you have a cape? <laughs> what, as, what a, as, a, as a super atheist, do you have a cape <laughs> super and a tiara? <laughs> it's interesting. I have to add that nomenclature or else people are like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, you're atheist. And I'm like, no, you keep talking to me about the universe and you keep talking like every, you don't, people don't understand how much religion is in the way they speak. Uh -huh. And like, I want to be like, yeah, I don't believe that. Yeah, I don't believe that. Then I feel like a downer constantly. But yeah. I'm also like, y'all have to understand what it means to be really, really atheist. Mm. And I'll give you the science every time you talk about something woo woo. All right. Well, we're going to put a, a an asterisk on that one because we 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 could talk for hours about that. Um, yeah. But we won't right now. Uh, but but this is an interesting segue. The next question: being right versus being effective. I love that question. That is the greatest thing I learned in kind of activism. Yeah. In good ways and bad ways. I saw people that I was like, please do this. It's more effective. And they went a different way and it worked because they were bold. Mm -hmm. And then the same thing, they went a different way and it completely ruined the movement. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so lots of opinions on this issue. If I'm talking for personal experience, this is a hard one for me. Effective. Okay. Right. Although here's my asterisk on that. I feel like often in the female role that I play, I have to play games to be effective. And it that's the why this question's hard for me. Yeah. I really wish I could just be honest yeah. and not play these games. Yeah. So even though I know how to do it, I know my ideas are gonna get across more. It's exhausting to do all of that emotional labor yeah. when I just want to tell you what the research shows. Right. But if I do that, then now I have to deal with your emotions of failure or confidence or whose fault it is, when really we just need to solve some problems here. True. Another interesting segue, because the next question that I have is changing the bad behavior of others versus changing the bad behavior of yourself. If there's anything I've learned in two marriages, it's that you <laughs> cannot change the behavior of others, period, ever. Mm, yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. The next question, judgment versus acceptance. Always acceptance. My attitude, I had a grandmother that's still my biggest bully. She's 95. I haven't made up with her. She, when I broke up at 19 years old with this Kentucky wealthy guy with dimples that wanted to marry me, uh, it was a really awkward story. Maybe we can segue there, but <laughs> you know, I got called into my Bishop. I got called into my seminary teacher. I got called into my, all these people trying to pressure me to marry this dude. And I was just like, I'm not interested. And I have, I, I'm 19. Like I want to go have a career. I want to have a life. And my grandmother, when after I officially broke up with him, said, Chelsea, he was the best thing about you. Oh, wow. Yeah. So she has judged me my entire life, like in our Christmas cards to the entire, like 
thousands of people. And my, my granddaughter, Chelsea has left the church. Her generations will be damned because of her poor decisions. You know, for real, that strong of language in a Christmas card. It's pretty bad. So she and I have never healed. However, what's been great about my big family is I learned from that, that, and my sisters and I, we kind of helped raise each other. You know, there's eight of us and there's, you know, just a lot going on. And we've, we've fought all of us and then gotten back together. And what we realized is when we're trying to parent each other, like we fight, when we're just accepting and loving each other, we're great. We're the best siblings ever. And that's how it goes with, with everyone in your life. So I tell my daughter, I say, Hey babe, you're the only person in this world. I need a discipline. I need to make sure you're not a little shit. Like mm-hmm. I need to make sure you can like carry your weight and be kind and be a good member of society. Yeah. Every other person in my life, my job is only to make space for them. And I think if more people made their mindset like that, it's such a relief. It's such a shift. Like I don't have anyone else's responsibilities, but to hold space for them. Yeah. Not be judgmental. No, I think that's so important. So when you're talking about holding space for them, you you mean you're, you're not trying to push them one way or another. You just, you are kind of accepting, but then of course, I'm sure you're also like, modeling the behavior that is the right kind of behavior, you know, that you feel is the right kind of behavior. And Glenn, this is really interesting. I think your users will find this interesting. As I've talked to more and more men about this topic, yeah, very few men understand what hold space for someone means. And Mm. almost every woman I know knows what that means. Mm. Okay. And what that means, and this is one of the critiques of the last time I did a podcast with you guys, both the feminism (laughs) one and the placebo one is But holding space for someone means is you're listening to what they're saying. You're not Mm -hmm. thinking of the next thing you're saying. Mm -hmm. You're not thinking of the next thing you want to contribute. You're literally just listening. And then once they're done talking, you ask a follow-up question about the thing they just said. Mm. You're in their space. You are letting them be the teacher. You are being the listener. And that means not interrupting, not saying that happened to me too, not saying, well, what about this? Not saying, well, not me. Do you know what I'm saying? Every time we do that, now you're the center of attention. And I think men don't understand that. That holding space for them means, how do I give this person who speaks different than me and looks different than me and commands the room different than me? How do I give them the center of attention? And sometimes that means just pulling yourself out of it and holding yourself quiet. Yeah. I love that. And once again, it's the perfect segue for the next question that I prepared for you, which is an interview with the troglodyte men of infants on thrones versus an unnecessary root canal. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you guys are not troglodytes. Um, But yes, it would be so fascinating. I truly believe there is nothing that cannot be discussed in a healthy way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my last, uh, marriage was a little difficult cause he had some mental health issues, but my first marriage, you know, we were able to be together 10 years, travel the world, go through some pretty heavy losses, like a lost adoption mm. halfway through. Um, and she was living with us in, in Africa. We were speaking Chi, you know, we were so excited to get to help this girl and it just didn't go through. And anyway, so he and I, and then a divorce, right. And leaving the church together. Yeah. So he and I were able to go through and co-parenting for 12 years. Yeah. So he and I have been able to go through every single thing in life without raising our voices, without saying mean things. That's nice. You know, being able to, here's what the reality is. So if I could have an infants on thrones, you know, 
uh, a discussion where we could talk about what holding space is and yeah. okay, this is what this thing is. And everyone's calm and everyone like is listening to each other. Absolutely. Every day. I hate root canals and I hate the dentist. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'll keep that in mind. And then the very last uh, multiple choice or yeah, multiple choice one is Greg versus Glenn. And I only put that because you called me Greg a couple of times in those other ones. Yeah. My name's actually Glenn, but that's okay. That's all right. I don't uh, even know who Greg is. Who's Greg? I don't know, but you said it a couple of <laughs> times and it really hurt my feelings. <laughs> well, definitely Ben. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Now I've got three more questions for you and these are true or false. And we're getting a little bit more, I think, into the areas that you want to talk about. But I mean, I've like laid the breadcrumb trail perfectly already with just totally. these questions. So here we go. The first true or false. Critical thinking means that you're able to see that bullshit pseudoscience is nothing but bullshit pseudoscience. And anyone who thinks that bullshit pseudoscience is anything other than bullshit pseudoscience is clearly lacking in critical thinking skills. False. All right. Explain yourself, Chelsea. I know, but and here's why. Um, I agree with you, by the way. Even, and I hated that we got on these paths of like gluten and like essential oils. Like those are just so... Like we're talking about, um, so oxygen, right? It's a big concept and it works on lots of systems, including how we breathe and what gets lit on fire, right? Mm. It's part of a lot of things. So if we were to talk about oxygen and the only thing we wanted to talk about is that it's flammable and how to make it flammable, I'd be like, sure. But like, it's so much bigger than that. Like it's one yeah. of the essential elements. And did be like, fine, like matches are cool. So was lighter fluid. Like, but let's talk about something else. Like, that's how it felt to talk about like gluten-free and like um, essential oils. Like, yeah, that's interesting. There are a lot of placebo effects and things like that. We can break it apart and talk about it. There's a bunch of pseudoscience, but there's also a bunch of real science. That's why the placebo effect is a complicated subject is because yeah. it's someone's ability to trigger neurobiological or right. biochemical changes due to what they believe right. the perceived environment in which they are in. Right. Yeah. yeah. So that is why it's such a complicated thing. Yes. Yeah. There's some bullshit. Yes. People use snake oil science. Yes. They try to make money off it and I can, we can talk through it, but we're talking like three fourths of a pie here. Yeah. Yeah. I, and, and the other reason why I thought it would be funny to include that critical thinking question as a true false is, is because the, I, I think sometimes there's this idea that, oh, if only people were taught critical thinking, then they'd all come to the same conclusions and the right conclusions without recognizing we've got a whole industries of like scientists that are brilliant critical thinkers that don't agree with each other. They come to different conclusions. They're interpreting data differently. You know, like that this idea that we just need to teach everybody critical thinking and then we're good. It's uh, silly. I completely agree. I think that um, we tend to lack the theory of relativity that Albert Einstein used in physics. We mm -hmm. tend to lack that in the social sciences. Mm. We don't talk about relativity enough. Right. So you can have the exact same science that I have. And depending on our positions, you could be the czar over public health. And I could be a you know, Spotify radio jock hockey or whatever they're called. Right. <laughs> Just, I, you know, I'm not going to say a name, but 
And we can have the exact same science. And based on our jobs, we're going to have different opinions because we have yeah. different incentive based. One incentive is how do I protect the mass amount of people the quickest way, the simplest way, and the fastest way? How mm. do I prevent mass casualties? Okay. The other person's incentive is how do I get the broadest amount of information out to the widest amount of people? Two completely opposite desires, goals, endpoints. So I think that's why we're having so many issues with science, science, what science? I hate elitism. It's wrong. It's right. Is that people have this idea of science as a monolith. It's not a monolith. It's a system. It's not an entity. It's not a thing. It doesn't exist. It's a system like algebra, mm. right? It's a system that works when you work it and when you do it right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I love science. It's either right or wrong and you can test it, right? But you and I, based on, okay, this thing is contagious, right? We're still going to have different outcomes based on our incentives, right? If I'm a mom to a young kid, I have a different incentive to COVID than an older person with a weak immune system. Yeah. So we also just have to look at this concept of social relativity and that that's partly why everyone has such different perspectives. We have really different incentives if I'm a business owner versus if I'm a social worker, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I like that. I've got two more questions for you, Chelsea, on the true or false side. And again, these are kind of tongue in cheek from the previous conversations. This next one is that cultural anthropologists have the luxury of finding irrelevant things to be fascinating, but real professionals in the medical field have to solve real problems for the real people sitting across from them. And they really don't have the time to waste on stuff that doesn't really matter. Fucking false. <laughs> we could talk about that for an hour. I, I think we have a couple out, but I don't know if it was talking or if it was like <laughs> slugging, but uh, yeah. Anything you want to say following up on that? I'm, I'm sure you, you encounter that attitude, that dismissive attitude all the time. All the time. And it's interesting when I talk to people, there's two things about it. Okay. I'll say two things and I could be wrong about either. In mm -hmm. fact, I'd love to hear your opinion. It's the okay. first time I'm kind of expressing it. So one thing is, I think it's the field that I'm in. And because it's a human field, humans are like, well, I'm an expert too, because I have a body. I'm a human, right? Whereas mm. if I was a biochemist, I wouldn't have random dudes who are 35 doing lobot, like that, like do like blood work being like, well, I know what that means. Cause I, cause I have a slightly medical field. Like, no, they're not going to like, they're not, or, you know, if I was a physicist, they're not going to. But if I'm an evolutionary biologist or a biological anthropologist, okay, and I'm doing the same, I have actually the same degrees plus more because I did both, they don't see that as the same as, as being a medical doctor or mm -hmm. as being a structural engineer, right? If, I, if you're a structural engineer, no random person's going to be like, oh, I can build that bridge better. Like mm -hmm. they just are, they're like, obviously you went to school. You learn some shit that I don't know. But when you're in a field that's human-based, and this is why I believe that we don't have the female Neil deGrasse Tyson, right? Mm, mm. Where's my female scientist that I love? I mean, Brene Brown's out there. I love her. I want to be like her someday. Mm. But like, where's the badass female social scientist? Is like Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, you motherfucking idiots. You know nothing about social scientists, science at all. In fact, you're admittedly on the spectrum. You cannot be creating the new digital world. You're not qualified. Like, where is that woman? 
That's what I want to see, mm. right? And I want the respect that a Neil deGrasse Tyson has because I have the same fucking degrees, if not a do. I know he's smarter than me. I agree. He's very smart. But I'm just saying, like, when can a woman show up in a room and get that respect? Yeah. Okay? So that's the second thing is I do think because of the way I look and my age and just maybe the way I talk, I don't know, that I can't show up into a room and get the respect from men that a traditional dual like math four degree like bachelor's master's dual phds in one subject would get if i were a dude yeah okay and that's you, one and you wanted to hear my opinion on that or did you have well, more and you then wanted the first to say about one that is, i just feel like because my field is about the human body and human sociality mm. and the human in general that like the average person especially men just think that they are just equally as experts which is just silly but that's just because like that's kind of what i'm finding yeah yeah, I I don't think that I'd have anything to say um except yeah to that. I it, it, it's it's the cultural conditioning that that the the power dynamic has been what it is. I think it's changing. I I think it's changing with a lot of people kicking and screaming as it's changing, but I'm happy to see the changes that are coming. But uh, w- one of the things that we talked about in one of our previous discussions was confirmation bias and how when you've got this pre-existing expectations of the way that things are or the way that things should be, it's really hard to overcome that programming that you have. And and I think, I mean, I heard that when I listened back to the episodes, I was embarrassed at times that you were not respected as much as I felt like you deserved. And I wasn't even giving you that respect that I felt like you deserved. And I, I just remember thinking, <laughs> I remember when you did the, uh, uh at sunstone you you got up and you did uh a comedy like a stand-up do you remember that yeah 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 totally. and like i look at that now and i think how brave and ballsy to get out you know like female ballsy of course but but how <laughs> brave and ballsy like big brass brass ballsy to to get up and do that but at the time I was too wrapped up in my own male egoness thing that I kind of like was like, eh, Chelsea, you know, like I, I was kind of shitty about it. like I had my own shitty reaction to that instead of. And so I look at it now as like I can't make excuses for it to say it, it was OK that I did that. But to recognize I, I was still and I still am in the process of unraveling a lot of my own biases um, that tell me that I could I can respect these people not but not these people i could respect somebody that is like this or not like this and i and i think in these conversations um several years ago there was a debate between uh, sam harris and jordan peterson that we covered on the podcast quite a bit and one of the things i really liked when they kind of took their debate on the road and they started steel each other's arguments and in one of the steel man uh, it, it came up that Sam Harris had a hard time answering directly Jordan Peterson's questions because he was afraid that there was some Jesus smuggling going on. Because I don't know if you know that Sam Harris is a super atheist. Oh, and, yeah. I would like to debate both of those men <laughs> sure. at length on yeah. a stage. It would be my life bucket list. Yeah, yeah, that uh, that would be fun. I'd buy a ticket to Both it. of them are pretty shitty to women. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sam Harris has gone on a little apology tour and has like apparently figured it out. But like, that's the other thing with atheism. They have a hard time with women too. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, but, but so I think that that idea of Jesus smuggling, when we're talking about placebo, and especially when you're talking with like really strident atheists, they're afraid that you're going to like, uh, that that this magical thinking component like that you have in the secret and other things is going to get you're you're going to new age smuggle some of these ideas in there so that you got to be really strident when you're talking about the power of belief and the power of perception and you know just because you think something is one way doesn't mean that it is that way and kind of get stuck in these ruts without having their own critical thinking skills to get outside of the ruts and see the exceptions to that it I, I think it has to do more with confirmation bias and how difficult it is to really change your own views on something that that you go into these situations where people don't really see you because they haven't been conditioned to see you that way. That's my opinion. Bigger than that. I think it's bigger than that. Yeah. I have like a three-part system to like heal the world. And the first part of that <laughs> system is we have got to get rid of religion if we're going to see each other as one biological species who needs to both save the planet, save the species and mm. help us live, you know, on other planets, or at least get our AI technology and, and, you know, data out into the world before this planet dies. It's mm. an inevitability. Mm -hmm. So, well, not the planet dies, but before we are a die off, we are going yeah. to be like the, no matter what we will be, no matter what happens. Okay. I don't, I'm not gonna tell you which way we're going to die. No matter what happens, in the long future, we will be wiped off this planet like all of the dinosaurs, okay? Mm, there yeah. will be no buildings. There will be no electricity. All of this data and internet that we save so much of our culture and our human technology and innovation will be wiped out of the earth, yeah. okay? Never to be found again. That's the reality I live in, okay? Mm. That's the reality a lot of Gen Zs live in. Where we're like, until we stop fighting and having little turf wars in different parts of the country, and so we start figuring out how to share natural resources, and so we start figuring out how to like have less children, and you know, figure out how to like get along. Like until we figure out how to be one culture, which we're getting there, we're actually becoming more and more globalized at an exponential rate all the yeah. time, and yeah. just like that. Yeah. Like we're not going to be able to solve these problems. Why don't all our cancer researchers all over the world get together, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Think of what could happen. Yeah. Like if I were an alien and I came to this planet, that's the first thing I would think of is you're all solving the exact same problems, wasting billions of dollars because of these weird turf wars that are like really archaic and quite, quite, quite medieval. And you guys have just kept them. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so the first one is we have to be one culture. The second one is we have to get rid of religion. I am amazed at 10 decade more since I've been out of the church. I'm amazed by how much people know about religion. doesn't matter if it's your religion, another religion, whether you believe it, whether you don't, doesn't matter if it's astrology or if it's, you know, the freaking, uh, like, rising moon, mercury crashing, whatever. People know all of this stuff. And then you ask them the basic biology questions, basic evolution questions, basic, hey, what three species are we most closely related to? What? We know so little about our own bodies. Yeah. So we believe we are celestial beings on this weird planet, almost a simulation theory like Elon Musk. I will fight that to my death. Like I will fight him. I will debate him. There's no simulation. Okay. Um, but we know so we pretend it is that way. 
rather than understanding our biology, our evolution, that we're apes, we're one of five great apes that still exist on this planet, um, and all of the other apes that have ever existed, or hominids, right? Like, that's our family. Um, they've all died. Like, we're the last ones of the hominids. We're it. They've well, we killed them. So they didn't, they didn't just die. They kill all of them. We <laughs> okay. intermated, we intermingled and mated True. with a lot of them. So, yeah. well, that's, 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 that's a good strategy love sometimes. And murder. Love and murder. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> so, and probably not love, probably forced copulation. But <laughs> anyway, so just, I guess, long story to that question is just, I think it's more than confirmation bias. I think that. We are so far from our biology and the, and it, no one is taking strides to get there. I mean, I think psychedelics is kind of raising the consciousness level a little bit. I just want it to go like into actual science and biology. But what we're seeing is people are just being co-opted. So that's the way to divide and conquer. So everything mm -hmm. we see is red versus blue, black versus yeah. red right versus left um this brand versus this brand you know john legend versus yeezy you know like it's always and that's easy for our brains we mm. like so basically the people who are giving us information have figured out how to hack our brains and that's what they're doing all oh, day, yeah every day oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so we're just in this system when really we need to be solving a lot of problems and we need to be figuring out our own biology to heal yeah all right. Good answer, Chelsea. I've got one more. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think this is going to take you right. I, I don't know. I hope it takes you where you want to go. Our response to tiny social threats are more significant to overall health and well-being than most people are aware, partly because they're so difficult to identify and measure. True or false? Ooh, can you read that again? Yes. Our response to tiny social threats are more significant to our overall health and well-being than most people are aware, partly because they, the the response to social threats, are so difficult to identify and to measure. Okay. The, yes, this is 100% true. I would just take out the word tiny because I don't okay. believe they're tiny. And I'll explain why. Like we we evolved. So we don't work on natural selection anymore. Yeah. So when I taught biological anthropology, I was a cool professor. My final was you have two minutes in a room with me. They all lined up and you have to explain natural selection. If you can't explain it to me, then you don't understand it. Mm -hmm. And like if you're able and the science shows again, placebo, right? If you're mm -hmm. able to explain something, you're more likely to remember it because it was a stressful, scary situation. And so it imprints on your memory more because it's painful. Okay. okay. So um, natural selection is pretty easy for people to understand. Okay. Even sexual selection is pretty easy. Mating, the peacock feathers, the antlers. Like I can explain any of this to you if you'd like, but mm. most people get it. Mm. What people don't understand is that we've kind of hacked natural selection. We have climates. We've kind of hacked sexual selection. We have Tinder. Okay. So the thing that, or, you know, we had uh, mating systems or we had arranged marriages or whatever. Like we've always hacked that somehow dowries or marriage for love or marriage for, you know, lineage of monarchy, whatever. We've always hacked marriage or dating. The thing that we don't really understand is that how humans operate in the modern world is through what's called social selection. That means your social status or your access to quality resources or quality relationships determines how long you live, how well you live, and basically your vulnerability to natural resources, like uh, natural disasters or pandemics 
or huge cultural shifts, immigration, migration, et cetera. So people usually at the top of a social system do better than people at the bottom of a social system during a time of crisis or war. That's just the way it works. And so that's our new natural selection. That's how who survives, who doesn't, who breeds, who doesn't, what culture survives, what cultures don't. And because of social selection, and because it's been hundreds of thousands of years, we actually have hyper, hyper, hypersensitive microexpression reading. We have a hypersensitive ability to sense threats and fear and creeps and violence that, um, from the most slight perception. So that perception might be tiny, but that feeling is really real. It's big. It's think about like a fire alarm. Like when you're in pain, you bump your funny bone or something, right? It's a fire alarm, it goes off. That's what this creep factor is. That's what the social selection factor is. It goes off on purpose. If you do something awkward and you feel like shit and you're like, that's that alarm system going off saying, what, what? You just did something weird socially. It's going to affect your chances of marriage or status or wealth or influence, right? So these are tiny. These are major things. Yeah, yeah. So so the, the, the response you're saying isn't tiny. The, the reason that I, I used the phrase tiny social threats is because that's what you said three years ago. And you were talking about um, social media and how something that might seem like a tiny slight can that's actually true. be really yeah. huge um, in, in the way that we experience it. Like it can have a much bigger impact than what we typically think of. And that's the thing that I think is hard. I think people with invisible diseases like Crohn's um, or, you know, anything autoimmune depression, depression, fibromyalgia, like anything like that, an uh, invisible disease, people have a really hard time with that. And that's how I like to describe what we're dealing with when we're talking about social health is it's invisible, but we still have neural pathways to cause the similar pain to our bodies when we do something bad socially. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Or when we get broken up with, or when we feel rejected or ostracized, like these are very real. It occupies the same neural pathways as your physical pain. And that's why people cut, right? It's a lot easier for a kid to handle a a cut with the knife across their arm that will heal. I can handle that. And all of a sudden, all this social pain goes away. Mm. I'll handle a cut, right? Because it's a distraction. Is that no, what you're saying? No, 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 no. Social pain and physical pain occupy the exact same neural pathways. Okay. Right, but but you're focusing on the physical pain instead of the, on the social pain, is what I'm asking. Yeah, both at the same time. It's right. Like- so you're distracting yourself from the social pain by creating physical pain, is what I'm asking. But it's not a distraction. A distraction is a mental trick to your brain. I'm saying neural path, like the actual biochemistry, is you cannot feel both at the same time. So cultures and people have manipulated that system through trial and error Mm. in order to stop one of those pains from happening, which is fascinating. It's not a mental thing. It's not a distraction. So you're saying I'm not trying to distract myself. I'm trying to prevent. I'm trying to eliminate it. It is literally like um, there's a bunch of water in a boat and I need to bail it quickly and I pull a plug and all the water comes out and all of a sudden my boat's fine. Okay. Okay. That's how it feels. Cause it, the opposite is not the same way. So for example, let me give you the opposite explanation. Okay. So a skateboarders with all his friends, he falls and crashes way hard. You know, he's in fucking pain, but he gets up. He's like, school, 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 school. Right. And it can kind of make it home. And there's not as much pain 
he's embarrassed. He doesn't want to look stupid. He doesn't want to look. He sees his mom, walks in the door and loses his shit. Okay. The social pain of looking like a weak ass boy was enough to literally mitigate the intensity, duration, and sensation of the pain he was experiencing until he got in a safe social environment where he didn't need to have that anymore. And then he felt the physical pain. It's literally an on switch and an off switch. Okay. And that's why self-harm is so, so, so popular. That's why BDSM and pain is so, so, so popular. That's why tattoos are so, so, so popular. And what's just crazy to me is that most people will agree. Oh yeah, that does. I do feel better after these things, but they've never once ever been taught how their own body works. Mm. Yeah. Why they're coping. Like I try to just talk to teenagers anytime I can, like, this is why you're over exercising. This is why you're cutting. This is why you're binging and purging. This is why you're overlifting. This is why whatever you're addicted to this is why you're over masturbating or like whatever the fuck you're addicted to. Like you're doing these things to cope. You need someone to help you learn healthier coping mechanisms. Mm. Like we're literally having our kids go to high school when their emotions are like heightened and we're like letting them choose to cope with heroin or soccer. Mm. We're just kind of letting them figure out how to choose. Like we're not really actively teaching our kids how to cope, even though we know they're going to have to. Mm -hmm. And we've all had to have to, but we did it on our own through trial and error. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Like we have like very intricate hair rituals to make sure no one goes gray, but like, we don't have any human rituals to like help people deal with strong emotion, which is pretty much what gets us in trouble most of our lives. Yeah. Okay. I'm depressed now, Chelsea. <laughs> no, don't be depressed. It's all I'm good. Just a little depressed. Okay. Why, why does that make you depressed? I'm curious. Well, no, j- just, just because I'm thinking about like my, my own kids that are growing up and struggling. And like, you're right. That, that we, our society doesn't focus on teaching healthy coping mechanisms. It doesn't teach us how to really understand who we are, what we're made of, why we think the way we do, why we feel the way we do, why we respond the way we do. Um, I'm going to keep using the word distraction. We just have all these distractions uh, around that we'd rather focus on these other things than what's really our experience is around. So it's a little discouraging in that way. I wish that there was more interest uh, in in these things, but I I don't even know there's a lot of interest. Right. And it was such a funny thing. Again, if I always have my students do that, if I were an alien and I came down, Hmm. like this would just fascinate me. Like this species is just fucking led by their emotions, like a dog on a leash, just like boom, 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 boom. And yet they know nothing about them. Yeah. Right. They then, once they experience a strong emotion, want to get rid of it as quickly as possible. Most of our coping mechanisms are literally just changing our biochemistry, kind of like that switch, right? Yeah. How do I change my biochemistry? Oh, I got broken up with. I'm going to eat chocolate and watch a romantic comedy. Mm, I'm going to watch porn and master it. Mm, I'm going to drink a bottle of wine. Mm, I'm going to go on a 20 mile bike ride. Mm, I'm going to, like, some are better than others. They're all just changing your biochemistry. That's all we're trying to do. And so for me, it's it bothers me as a super atheist yeah. because the one thing every single human on this planet has in common, which is so hard to find, is that we have a human body. So we should be able to talk about how to operate that body. 
how that body evolved, what happens when the body feels this way or this right. way, almost like we do with medicine, but with socio-emotional health, mm-hmm. right? Um, and yet that kind of stuff gets so like constantly. That's why I hate why evolution is such a controversial topic because to me, it's just like gravity. It's so proven, like no scientist in the world that actually is respected will fight evolution nowadays. No one, they will start to fight the beginning how did we come to be how did our dna get on the planet is it intelligent design was it dropped off by aliens okay fine whatever no one is fighting how the human the cha- you know small changes through modifications over time via natural selection no one in the world that's a scientist that has studied the facts is fighting this it's yeah. like gravity yeah. right and yet if i tried to start a course like that that went you know in every even american class it'd be fought really because well, no, 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 no. You can't tell us that our bodies came from evolution. You're not allowed to do that in school or else I get to say what happened in my religion with the body. Right. So that's what's so hard as a scientist is we can actually prove all of us have the same fucking bodies. But now I can't teach it unless I provide a myth. One of millions of myths side by side. So so Chelsea. If you were an alien that came down and encountered these earthlings, I mean, I'd be curious to find out a little bit about your background and technology and worldview as an alien. Obviously, what your confirmation bias is as an alien coming and observing this planet. But what would you do to um, to, to promote your vision for global harmony and world peace? Um, love that question. Well, first of all, that's the opposite of anthropology. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to answer in two ways. Right, right, right. Because, because the alien but might not, you know, they, they might not be. You're not allowed to do anything. <laughs> you're not allowed to do anything. I saw some pretty horrific stuff in uh-huh. my time. Uh-huh. And your ethical creed is not to change the ritual. Yeah. It's it's to observe. Think about if we could go back to some of the Native American cultures that lived here and mm. watch what they did. We've lost it completely. And so it's different than going on a mission to another country. It's different than trying to go set up infrastructure in another country. Like the pure anthropologist believes that our job is to come here and see every little nugget of cultural knowledge as like almost like we see a museum. Mm. like catalog log it figure it out why do they do it that way how is it the same how is it different we're gonna lose this culture and it's so fascinating we've got to capture it so that's just the first part and a true anthropologist would never want to change anything but a critical anthropologist does Mm. so if i were a critical alien anthropologist and came Mm -hmm. down yeah (laughs) no i would probably and again it's humans are really difficult to change. So I'm going to tell you what I would, I think needs to happen, not how I would do it. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like we talked about earlier, the, the effective versus right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I can have the right answer, but if I just go at it and just tell you, I'm not going to get the way I want. Cause I'm going to get defensiveness. I'm going to get excuses. I'm going to get whatever. So if I really want to get my answer, I'm going to go about it the way that I know how to manipulate or not manipulate influence human behavior to get the outcome I want. So that's way too much work for now. I'll just tell you what I think needs to happen. What needs to happen is we need to see each other as one culture. What needs to happen is we need to have the same ideology, which for me is rooted in this is the earth. 
this is how it grows. This is how it's changed. This is your body. We all have one. Here's how they work. Like that we could all share. There's no gods. Yes. Have your religion. Just like have your Freemasonry. Just like have your weekly bridge club. Just like have your PTA. Like religion needs to be on that level. It's Mm -hmm. a comfort source. Yeah. It's not a philosophical or ideological um, um, vehicle that could authority a planet, right? There's no religion that is so believable that every single of the 8 billion of us will believe it, right? Even though religion is easier to manipulate, right, than science. So like, it would be nice to have one religion and then just manipulate everyone to do the right thing so we're saved. But, you know, humans aren't that way. So, you know, one ideology, one culture, And then I have this firm, again, it's based on pattern recognition over time in multiple cultures and based on science. You know, one of the most interesting reports on terrorist attacks that came out that really didn't get as much attention as I thought it would get is that um, terrorists don't, people think terrorists have certain things in common. Like they're all refugees or they're all migrants or they're all Islamic or they're all men or they're all this or they're all this or they're all this. And this report basically found out, well, yes, they're majority men. (laughs) And then the second thing they had in common is, and this is not to be laughed at, most of people who admit these atrocities have been sexually, emotionally, and physically abused Mm. and are in positions of instability, okay? Nowhere to heal, nowhere to get, you know, they're in their input. So they've been harmed and they're now in a position of instability. So I look at everyone who loves their dogs. This is a very much, Americans are very much love their dogs, okay? And every time I say, I would never get a pit bull, I hit pit bulls because they kill people. Every dog lover is like, no, 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 no. It's how you raise them. It's how you raise them. You just got to raise them while you got to take care of them. So that's how I want you guys to think about these terrorists. They are humans that have not been raised well, that have been kicked, that have been raped, that have been left outside, that have been neglected, that have been maltreated. Like these are the people who are committing most of these atrocities in our world. And then if you bring that to people in prison, you bring that to people who are domestic violence abusers, you bring that to people who are, right, drug addicts. So I truly believe homeless, okay? Most of the people in society are that are struggling, including people who are able to do their day to day, but are still struggling and going through addictions, it's they haven't healed. So hurt people, hurt people, healed people, heal people. Mm. Like that's the third thing is until, and I think that's like Michael Pollan's thing, like raise consciousness, get on shrooms, get on ketamine, like heal your shit and then help us build a society where of healed people healing other people. And I believe both of those sides of the coin. So like most of the crimes, most of the problems, most of the lying and the cheating and that's happening in the world is because these are not fully healed people. These are people scraping for fame, scraping for money, scraping, you know, they're not, they're, you know, dogs who have been neglected, you know, is the way I kind of see them. And mm-hmm. people who are truly healed have this massive potential, right? But it takes a long time to get there. And so that's my, the, the last thing, and this is kind of an asterisk here is like, Fucking fuck youth. Like, I'm so sick that people are obsessed with youth. Like, you have to be great by 20. You have to be great by 30. You have to be great by 40. No, I I am so much better than I was at 20 and 30 and 35. Like, I'm so much smarter. I'm so much more healed. You would have been better if you would have married that guy from Kentucky. (laughs) At 19, right? Yeah. (laughs) 
Oh, yes. So I just, I do think we have this obsession because of Instagram and social media and TikTok. We have this obsession with youth because youth, we're, it's hardwiring. I just want to give people permission. Like, it's okay. It's your hardwiring. We're hardwired to love neotenous things. It's just the way our brains work so that our human, our, our species survived, right? Like, we didn't even, we weren't even supposed to live beyond 40, right? Like, in the true trajectory of hominids. So, really, it's not your fault, but we are so obsessed with youth. That's where we give power. That's where we give sexuality. That's where we give knowledge. That's where we give, like, influence. And to me, like the people we actually need to be listening to, no one is paying attention to. They just don't happen to be hot or or popular, right? And, and it's such a weird, that's why I'm like, the way that we've developed these digital social worlds are really um, highlighting and promoting qualities that are unsustainable over time. Yeah. Beauty will fade right? Yeah. Age will fade. And so we're creating a system that always needs that young and that youth. And then we're spitting out these people who are wonderful and young and capable who feel like shit now. Yeah. And they didn't get those, that education at that time. They didn't get that, you know? So anyway, I've, I've got a question for you and in, in, in the answer that you just gave, um, it sounded like that you were talking about uh, when you were talking about terrorists specifically, that that most of them have been abused, neglected. Um, you, you know, you 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 did that whole list, and I I was thinking about, and then there there's that group of people, and there's also ones that um have been healed wholly. That then you know, like the hurt people, hurt people, the healed people, healed people. This is just a guess. I don't think that there's a study that could even really give an accurate answer to this question but just what do you think the ratio is on the general population of the hurt people versus the healed people oh that's a brilliant question plan oh thanks i love getting a question my brain has never thought of before because it's like <gasps> i get to like recompute all this stuff all um, right i think there's probably only 10 to 15 percent of healed people Okay. And what my definition of that is, is someone who is emotionally intelligent. So why that's my barrier is that's usually the hardest thing to control when we haven't been healed mm. is our emotions and heightened in heightened states of emotion. That's usually when our, our ability, our social facade is cracking, right? So people who are truly healed can make it through even times of like emotional ardor because yeah it's their core. It's not just a social fabrication, right? Yeah. I, I, I would love for, to hear you explain that answer a little bit more like the, especially from the, the perspective of biological anthropology, how our bodies have evolved with, with, with our fight or flight responses. Like, why is it that when we get triggered, we immediately go into kind of the, the behavior that perpetuates the 85 to 90% of the people that are continuing to hurt, as opposed to developing that emotional intelligence that then I, I think creates a metacognitive state where you're able to make a decision. Like you, you recognize you're triggered, but, and you recognize you've got these triggered impulses, but you know, you've got a choice. 
that that's what that's what I hear when you're talking about the emotional intelligence. Yeah, that's like absolutely. maybe ten to fifteen percent. You know, who knows what the actual number is? But well, and it does depend on the culture because I do believe there are okay. So it's not just biological, but cultural. People in okay. certain cultures that have different requirements than our cultures, right? Um, so I would look at a lot of Polynesian cultures. Older people, you know, didn't have to go through tra- certain traumas and didn't have to like heal them in, in like these ways that we do nowadays, right? And and they're perfectly happy having not gone through these cycles. Like I'm sure that exists, right? Mm-hmm. I'm thinking more of like modern industrial, like urban, urban centers. Um, I think it's quite rare. And the reason it's quite rare is because, and there's a great podcast with Joe Rogan. I believe his name was Gabor Matisse. I can't remember, but he studies stress mm-hmm. and, you know, just talked about how, you know, babies in Africa, after they're out of your body, they're wrapped on your back and they're placed in your back in a specific way. And I, my cousin is married to a Ghanaian who was raised in, in Denmark. So like, I actually have to teach them how to like tie the baby on the back in a certain way so that the baby's ear is right in the back of your heartbeat. Mm. Boom, 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 boom. So they go from being under your heartbeat in the womb to Mm here in the back of your heartbeat in the back and these kids off for the first like about three years and that's the family planning right as long as I'm nursing I'm you know I can't really get pregnant and so this is we nurse as long Mm. as possible so and that's the healthiest thing so anyway long story short the baby never really quite leaves mom for three years it sleeps when it sleeps it wakes when it wakes and the mother's schedule is around that baby yeah. Okay. So imagine our bodies for 150,000 years, 200,000 years, people are now finding evidence of fire from 300,000 to 500,000 years ago in China. So mm-hmm. when we think of fire, the reason why that's so important is that's cooked meat that increases our brains and fire also leads to bigger societies. The bigger yeah. society you have, the bigger brain you have, the more complicated brain you have, the more folds you have, the more neurosynaptic connections you have, the more you're having experiences in the front part of the brain that really developed the intelligence that we have, right? So finding fire is a big deal. So think about that. Let's just say 350,000 years ago. Okay. That's when our bodies evolved. So these bodies evolved in societies where we, our parents didn't go away to jobs all day. Our parents didn't let us cry it out at night. And that's the scientist issue is in the past, you cried, your mom picked you up, fed you, put you down. Yeah. You know, she'd also say like, if you fell like, you know, pat you on the butt and be like, don't be a baby. Right. They were also harsh in certain ways, but you were never left to cry yourself to sleep by yourself in a room. What does that teach a young baby that when you're stressed and when you're coping, you're on your own. So from that very young age, and really it was an adaptation that helped parents get their kids sleep trained so that they can get their schedule mm. back on. Right. It's so it's, it's for an American or like a modern schedule. That's why we did that to kids but it has significant effect on the baby throughout time. Now that's such a, such a tiny, 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 tiny one. But what we've learned is that in this state of stress, there are certain um, histones that are unable to unwind to then be copied, to then go make the proteins, okay? So stress is one of those things, if it's floating in your system. And, and when you're saying stress, are you talking about cortisol? Any stress. So there's a bunch of stress hormones. Okay. So, so it's not just cortisol. Stress. It's not just okay. cortisol. There's a bunch of stress hormones. So if your body is able to register those stress hormones, it says, hey, we're in a time of fight or flight. 
Maybe our family is nomadically moving from one location to another. Now is not the time to heal and repair. Now is not the time to create new brain cells, to grow. Like we're not even going to grow. We're not even going to make you symmetrical. Like we're in a state of stress, right? So what that does, and that's how, what we know from the storytelling, what we know from the neurobiology is if the if there's a presence of that stress, your DNA literally cannot unwind. It stays tight, okay? It's just like a biological reaction. It can't unwind. So kids who experience early childhood stress, whether that's neglect because you have eight kids, whether yeah. that's you know death at a young age of something, whether that's divorce, whether that's abuse, whether that's, you know, you name it. There's a million migration, immigration, being a refugee. Like there's a million ways to experience early childhood stress. What we find is that they tend to have less natural buffers against trauma than people who have had safer, um, less stressful childhoods. And when they actually go in and do the research, they find it's an epigenetic thing that they mm. have the DNA. It just never unwound. They yeah. just never actually made the proteins, right? Okay. And that effect. So those people tend to have higher rates of schizophrenia, um, depression, anxiety, mental health issues. Um, they also tend to respond really quickly to in a fight or flight state, almost as if that's my norm, right? Rather than I'm going to be okay. My norm is safety. Mm-hmm. This is just a stress state. Their norm is stress. Yeah. So I've even known people, and I'm, I mean, sure anyone on this podcast knows people that if they're constantly in that trauma, they had a bad early childhood, that they actually, if things get a little too quiet and too boring, they cause stress. Right. They cause a fight or they right. cause drama because it's like, that's at least exciting, right? Because their body sees that as the most natural state. Yeah. There's even some research on triggers and traumas related to physical syndromes like epilepsy, like Crohn's, like um, flare-ups, like um, where our body is now so fibromyalgia, like our body is now taking on that stress. Like I may come across totally fine, but I figured out a way to kind of store that stress in my body. And I'm not mentally like paying attention to it, right? And then it has all these like, these, these other physical problems. So just, just basically from leaving the kid in the cot to, I could go on a hundred different things to kind of show you over time, how some people have basically have bigger emotional muscles that have been worked on longer than other people. And what's interesting is I find that women tend to be more emotionally and socially intelligent than men. Um, There are some science that says we do better on like visual and social, like, skills tests, those kind of things. So we do have some proof there. Um, But what I also see is that the way that women interact with each other is a lot more passive aggressive. Mm. Um, It's less competitive. It's less like over like, Hey, Hey, what's up? What's up? So when you talk to guys, you kind of, every guy knows the experience of walking in a room and all the guys kind of size each other up. Who's bigger, who's wealthier, who's taller, who's stronger. And then some of the guys are like, I'm not doing this shit. And they just keep their head down. And right. So, but all the guys know that. And often you explain that to women and they're like, wait, what? That happens all the time. What do you mean? We're just at a bar having fun. Like, I didn't see that. Right. So the girls are kind of unaware of that. But that's the same exact thing on the flip side. 
where women since fifth grade have had these really complicated multi-female, multi-female relationships, right? It's when, it's when, you know, you're, you're calling your friend and someone's on the two-way line, but you don't know they're on. And then you like, ah, oh no, she knew. And I said something bad. And like, they're just these very complicated insider relationships and you develop these really tough skins. You develop tougher skins with people, you know, who are trying to be passive aggressive and you develop a more sensitive way of communicating. And you begin from a young age of like figuring out how to talk about emotions and friendships and feelings and, and it's practice of kind of growing that muscle that I don't think men have as much. And so what I find in dating men and women, which is really interesting as an adult is that the women are probably a decade ahead of the men in terms of like emotional intelligence. But I often find the men are about a decade ahead of the women in terms of financial independence. Mm. It's a fascinating thing. I think we trade off, you know, I think we do trade offs in this culture, but that's one of the fascinating things I've seen with, with men. Okay. So, so what, what I heard you say in there. It, Basically, I'm going to use different words, but that just like we have an external environment that we live in and we can look at the uh, results of our choices on the environment and say, hey, there's global warming and these environmental conditions impact us in certain ways. We have this internal environment in our bodies where there can be stress hormones and things like that that come as a result of a lot of different things that we do. and that inner environment with those chemicals can have an impact on our genetics, the way that we express ourselves, the, our ability to develop this emotional intelligence over time. And there's a lot of social factors and uh, that, that play a role as well, but it's that inner environment of our body that I've become a lot more aware of in the last couple of years and it's one of those areas where I get frustrated that it doesn't seem like people really know about this or really care about it because they don't realize that the rants that they're doing that make them feel like, okay, I'm doing something to contribute to all the injustice in the world is, is creating this really toxic internal environment in some cases where you, you're putting yourself in this constant state of fight or flight based on ideas that don't really impact you except in these ways not only that ideas so think of it this way you know if we were asked to pedal a bicycle to power another company we'd be like yeah no thanks like if it was just sitting there like very few people would go up and like actually do it but that's what we're doing with our anger we're literally pedaling the bicycle of marketing for big companies So what we find on social media is that an angry post, and this was, you know, found out in Congress, Facebook admitted to it, a post that's angry gets shared five times plus, Mm. often more than any post that makes you happy. Yeah. And so we're being fed these things that makes us angry because if we feel angry, we are more likely predictively from a human behavioral science perspective, more likely to do what's called engagement or action more mm-hmm. like that means clicks, likes, retweets, shares, et cetera. And when we're working in a marketing funnel, that's how we judge money. Yeah. That's how we judge if it's working. Yeah. So of course I want more likes. That's what the company wants. The company doesn't want more anger. The company wants more likes. Yeah. But the people who understand marketing, 
understand, well, I can make my effort five times faster if I create a conflict. Mm -hmm. Who wouldn't do that? Right. So for me, it's that it's it's looking through the system and understanding that, oh, we're just a cog in this wheel peddling this thing that's helping this company make money. And I think that's why the Mormon stories podcast hasn't really changed over the years. And Infants on Thrones has anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. No, exactly. (laughs) And here's the thing. If you stay the same, you can keep telling that same story and you figure it out and you know how to do this and you know how to like just crunch. However, (laughs) that's not how normal humans grow. This is why I get a lot of rebrands, not brands, rebrands because we've never existed for two decades in a digital world Mm. and most of us have grown okay well chelsea this has been a great catch-up i want to do more of these with you if you're up for it because i mean honestly i've got a whole list of things that i want to talk with you about that we just like wouldn't have time to get to today but i know that uh, i had so many listeners reach out to me asking you know, like what's Chelsea up to these days? What's she doing? How could I get in touch with her? So just, just to wrap up today, why don't you answer those questions? What are you up to these days? And how can people get in touch with you if, uh, if they wanted to? So I live in Salt Lake city with my daughter. Um, I own my own company where I do user experience research, UX research. So that's basically anything from a qualitative research perspective. So most companies have a lot of quant guys on their uh, quantitative researchers on their staff. Very few people hire a full-time qualitative researcher. So what that means is they're pumping out all the data from, you know, analytics from industry, well, hopefully industry, if you have a good guy from Facebook, from social, from engagement, from emails, right? They're do- handling all all of the data, but who's going out and actually talking to your customer and seeing if they like the red packaging or the pink packaging mm-hmm. or asking, you know, what product do you need next? Rather than just coming up with it in a boardroom with a bunch of men, like let's go out and ask our women <laughs> what they want. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's really taking that like radical customer first approach. So that's the first thing I do at my company. And the second thing I do at my company is branding and rebranding from an evidence-based perspective. So rather than just, you know, here's your new look and feel or identity or like logo, um, branding is just so complicated nowadays that I find I don't do a lot of small brands or like personal brands or influencers. What I do is companies probably 500 million to 2 billion and they need a rebrand, but they can't lose their current economic income that's coming mm-hmm. in from their current people, right? But they absolutely have to rebrand because they're seeing their numbers go down every single month. So it's one of these really stressful things. And that's when I go in because we really need every decision to be evidence-based because we need those numbers to pop as soon as possible. So I go in and I do things like all the competitive research. What are your competitors doing? Um, Then I go out and do market research. Like what is the market like? Where, what is selling? What is not selling? Who is buying? What do they look like? Who, what is their gender? Where are they? Like, are we actually talking to them? Right. Then we go out and do industry research. So where is the industry going? Which sectors are growing most? So for example, in health and wellness, what surprised everyone is after COVID, the sector that really spiked is like wellness seminars, retreats, day spas, um, get togethers. Like people just want communal wellness experiences and that skyrocketed and no one was quite prepared for that right so now i go to companies like okay here's what we're seeing skyrocketing so then i go out and actually interview the customers and i'm like what do you like about this company what do you hate about this company and i'm kind of an outsider so i get a lot more honest opinions and then i do something called ethnographic research which is probably my favorite 
this is the closest to the anthropology I love, mm. um, which is I get to go in the actual closets. If I'm doing a fashion house, I get to go into the actual closets of the women. And I ask them, okay, when did you, why did you buy Gucci for this event and St. John's for this event and Lafayette 148 for this event? And when do you upscale? And when do you downscale? I get to talk to them in their clothes. Do, or do you, do you become a participant observer and try on the outfits that you like? Oh, I wish that would be really awkward. <laughs> yeah, you don't try on rich people's clothes. No, 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 no. But I really, really, really enjoy it. Um, and when you have a rich client, you have to do like champagne focus groups and Soho. Like you can't just do a focus group. So it's really fun. Um, but like when I have beauty <laughs> clients, I get to go and like look at women's actual beauty drawers. They're mm. not beautiful. They're messy, right? And I get to see the real experience. And so coming back from a brand like that, like you can imagine, Imagine the amount of information that an executive team gets like, whoa, like that's more than we get from, from most branding. Right. So that's kind of what I do right now. Um, I love it. I have some amazing clients and I've done some incredible brands and I have some on the horizon that are awesome. That kind of pays the rent, but eventually I would love to do my work, mm. would I, which I've got gotten all these degrees in. I want to go into placebos. I want to write my placebo book. I'm like halfway there. Um, I want to even maybe teach placebo courses. I want to like really get it out there because there's so much that you can do with that subject. So eventually I'd love to do that um, someday. Well, I've got time. I don't have to rush right now. I know you said that there were about five points that you wanted to talk about with placebos. I don't know if we got, if we kind of like roundabout covered them in those those first, is there more that you want to talk oh, about? With well, let's do it. Do, do you have time? Yeah. Okay. So I have this block till four. I don't know if we want to do a two hour or if we want to like redo another, like this was a catch up and we'll do it. whatever you want to do. Bob. Let's let we're here now T tell me, okay. tell me what you can and, and we'll do another one later. Okay. We'll do it all. Chelsea. We'll do it all. Okay. And we'll go quick and maybe we can like dive deeper into the things that, yeah. um, okay. So if I were to go back and do a podcast, and just tell you about placebos. These are probably the five things that I would want the average person to understand about placebos, okay? So most people think, and I will, I'll get into the five, I'm just gonna give you kind of an introduction. So most people think that a placebo is something that is in your head, okay? Oh, it's in my head. It's imagined and, it, and that's all. I have all. a belief, then the belief yeah. comes through. Or when, when you're thinking about the secret, the secret's another placebo, right? If I believe in an abundant mindset and an abundant lifestyle, if I'm looking for the yellow car, I'm more likely to see the yellow car, right? So if I am, the secret is really functioning off a basis of, hey, I'm looking for the good in life. I'm looking for the generous. I'm looking for the the opportunities for wealth, right? That's really kind of a different outlook in life. So, but that's why it works, right? Same thing as I'm looking for fights. Like you're going to get in more fights than the average person, right? That's just comfort. Like I, I've thought for a long time that the, the, when people talk about law of attraction, they're describing confirmation bias. Exactly. Law of attraction. And I think there's another psychological word for it. I can't remember what it is. So okay. that's really what they're talking about, right? Yeah. But what I want most people to understand is placebos are not one of those. They're both of those. Mm. The placebo is the law of attraction. The placebo is the confirmation bias. It's also the conditioning response. It's also an opioid receptor response. It's also a pain, which is pain dampening, right? An analgesic. It's also an endorphin inspiring or eliciting response, which gives you, you know, endogenous morphines, which is yummy, right? It's also 
an adrenaline response. It's also a health resource allocation response. It's also a stress response. It's also, and I could keep a behavioral endocrine response, right? So we can even relate fertility to behavioral endocrinology, meaning whether you're able to get pregnant or not based on your stress levels, okay? And what's happening to you socio-emotionally or in your environment. So we have some really good evidence there. So what's interesting is we have evidence of each of these like individual systems, Okay, and each of these individual systems is the are the are the unified mechanisms or integrated or interrelated or influencing concomitant, you know, mechanisms behind the placebo effect. It's not one thing. So that's the first thing I want everyone to know about the placebo effect. It's not an entity. It's a system. So I like to think about it like oxygen okay, or pain or stress. It's an entire system. Stress is not one thing that you can pinpoint. It's not an organ. Like pain, where's your pain? Well, where does pain exist when you're not in pain? We don't know, right? It's just a system that works, almost like an alarm system, right? And that's the way I want people to think about um, the placebo effect. It's basically, uh, it's the mechanism of how our biology changes via an external stimuli or trigger. Okay, so think of it that way. And that gets us into our number two. So never think of the placebo effect as one thing. Think of it more like a body system, okay? And the body system it works off of, and that's number two, is what basically makes human the, humans the most successful species on this planet, which is we're highly, highly, highly adaptive. So we are more than any other species um, are basically, we can be called an invasive species because we are able to occupy more niches than most animals on the planet. None of the other five apes can live in deserts, can live in cold climates, can, you know, live in any of these other places. Part of that is physiological and phenotypic and genotypic adaptations that we've acquired over time, like skin color, right? Um, and body size and shape and all that stuff. And some of them, is cultural adaptations, technological adaptations, the ability to wear clothes, to build shelters, right? These are all adaptations. So really what's happening internally, if you understand that concept of adaptation, right? What's happening internally to our body is what I call minute or infinitesimal adaptations or hyperreactive. We might even say that way with like a micro expression. You are unconsciously responding to it before your brain has even processed that you saw that, right? That's kind of what's happening with the placebo effect is these small, small, small things are creating a trigger, which basically is turning on light switches or turning off light switches in your body either creating certain stressors or creating certain parasympathetic responses, which are relaxants, right? So think of uppers and downers kind of in order to get you to behave in the right way at the right time for this exact setting. So I'm going to be giving you different kind of degrees of uppers and downers. If you're standing on a stage giving a TED talk, then if you're trying to get you know, kiss a girl on the first date than if you're taking a test than if you're watching a movie, right? We're getting different uppers and downers dependent on that environment. Most people understand that. They're like, yeah, that makes total sense. And that's really the system of how the placebo effect works. And so that's number two. So number one, it's a system, not an entity. Number two, it's all about adaptation. And then number three, it's hyper-social. 
hypercultural. So this is why it's such an interesting thing for me to study. When I first was in graduate school, before I knew about studying the placebos, I was really obsessed with this term culture bound syndromes. So I wanted to study a culture bound syndrome. And what that means, it's a, it's a disease or a disorder or a syndrome that only affects certain cultures. So we know it's not a biological constraint that's stopping it. We know it's a cultural constraint that's limiting it to certain populations, which is really fascinating to me as an anthropologist, because here we have something bigger than the individual placebo. What we're seeing here is almost like a cultural genic or a sociogenic. We have these kind of phenomenons all the time, but we're seeing it more at this cultural level of a belief system, whether that's positive or negative. So for example, among the Hmong, there's this beautiful book um, on the nocebo effect and it talks about um, uh, sudden unexpected death syndrome, which is basically SIDS for adults, but it's called SUNS. And it's uh, among the Hmong population. If you wake up and you have sleep paralysis, there is a belief that a certain spirit is sitting on your chest and it's the spirit of death. Mm. It's your judgment day and, and mm. you're going to be die. There's no other meaning. Uh, we don't have other meanings behind it. And there's there's some science into why that works and we can get into those details. But long story short, of the people who die of sons in America, the Hmong, which are a very, very, very small population of Americans, have extremely high rates, right? So that's a culture-bound syndrome. Because they they have the expectation that if they have sleep paralysis, that that means they're going to die that day. Yep. So and they're more likely to cardiac arrest. Okay. So basically the heartbeat goes, it's called a vagal, a uh, dorsal vagal um, break. I hope I'm saying that right, uh, doctors. But basically people thought it was that the heartbeat gets too fast that you die of cardiac arrest, but it's the opposite. Mm. It's you get so stressed, like the worst stress you've ever experienced. People often say this, even with people who die of heartbreak, that it happens like this. And then it's your body's parasympathetic response. It's your body's break. It's your body's relaxation where it's like, this is too much. We've got to slow this down. That is too powerful. And it turns off the heart. Mm. That's kind of some of the science behind it. But basically I studied for a year eating disorders among Utah women because white women um, have the highest rates of anorexia. We don't tend to see this among um African-American women, we tend, don't tend to see this. We do tend to see this among certain Latina populations, but it depends. So there's very interesting culture-bound syndrome of who experiences anorexia. Um, so I lived and worked with these women for a year studying that um, and just kind of studying the impact of culture. And what you learn when you're studying a culture-bound syndrome is the importance of that social system to kind of feed into what is health. What is sickness? What is right? What is wrong? So it's really hard to tell a young girl, stop being skinny when your culture is telling you skinny is better, right? Which person is right? So that's what we mean by culture-bound syndrome is that the things that we're learning in our culture are basically so strong that they're having a bigger influence. They're affecting our biology now, right? And that's what a placebo effect is too. So beyond just being a system in the body that works on adaptations. It also think of that same system of adaptation and response happening in the social and culture world. So one of the most famous studies was, you know, uppers and downers, you give a bunch of undergraduates, blue pills and red pills. And we asked them to document or journal for a day, right? What did the blue pill make you feel? What did the red pill make you feel? Okay. 90% of the world, blue calms them down and red pumps them up. 
and, and again, it's a bell curve. This is humans have the hardest time understanding bell curves. Not everyone, <laughs> not everyone, yeah. but among statistically significant amount, all thought red was an upper and all thought blue was a downer. Okay. Until you get into Italy. In Italy, all of a sudden, blue was the upper and red was the downer. So then they started doing some research. Why, why, why? Well, in this one town where they did the research, blue is the soccer team. Mm -hmm. the and, and I think their name meant something like really strong and powerful. And, and that's what we mean by culture can affect your biology. Because, oh, I'm taking the blue. I think it's strong. Boom. Placebo. Now my body is creating strong and vibrant and vital. Your body will create what that expectation is, right? So no one is lying about the feeling that they're experiencing. It's just that the trigger, red or blue, had a different cultural significance on what mm -hmm. that meant. Just yeah. like the Hmong sleep process, but just a much simpler, you yeah. know, case study. Yeah. So that's the, I think, third thing. Yeah. So third thing I want you to remember is that our bodies are hyper, 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 hyper social. We're always looking for cues. Do you like me? Do you like me? Do you love me? Do you love me? We're always looking if we belong, if we don't, we're hyper vigilant. And so placebo effects work on that too. That's why you can't just placebo yourself right? That's why it helps to have a religious leader that you believe in, whether it's that's a shaman or a priest, a Mormon bishop giving a blessing. It actually doesn't matter who the person is. What matters is that you, the person believes that they have a power that right. is real. Yeah. That's the thing that makes the placebo work, right? right? And you, that doesn't exist without social sociality and culture, right? Who is that person? Why do they have authority? Yeah. What are they doing? What is the ritual? Like each of those things ups the placebo effect, right? So if we have a ritual, if we have a doctor with authority, if the person believes in that doctor with authority, if their family believes in that doctor with authority, and we can actually scientifically kind of dose the placebo by adding these social factors on. So your sociality, absolutely your culture, your meanings, your systems, what you believe, like all of that does affect the placebo effect because it is basically world, you are creating your own world in which you are perceiving and responding and adapting to. Yeah. So that's how we can manipulate the placebo effect is change that world, change the triggers with which your body's constantly adapting to, right? And that's what a lot of healers do. That's what a lot of shaman do. That's what a right. lot of um, com complementary and alternative and integrative medicine do. Yes, they do some amazing like direct biochemical changes, but a lot of what they do too is repositioning you in a worldview that is actually triggering your placebos, not your nocebos, right? You know, you can I pause you just for a minute? Yeah. Because totally. I, I've been, I, I've been a life coach for the last couple of years and I have a, I have a questionnaire that uh, clients fill out at the beginning. And a lot of them are worldview type questions. And the reason I ask those questions is it because it, it kind of gives me an indication of, you know, I ask worldview questions, then I kind of ask some questions about like, what areas of your life you're satisfied, where you're not satisfied. And then I kind of like make some connections between these things. And at the end of coaching, I have them take the, the, the survey again. And I almost always find that where there's been an increase, like I was dissatisfied here. Now I'm satisfied here. There's a correlative shift in their worldview. And it's, it, this is another one of those things that I just don't think that people really understand, but it's, it, it's absolutely fascinating. I agree. I don't think people get this enough. I even felt that way with my stepkids where 
these kids are on their phones constantly. We're living in this on-demand world. Like I didn't get on demand on TGIF. I had to watch whatever, like Family Matters. I hated Family Matters because it was on on Friday. Was okay? that the Urkel one? Yes. I never saw that. <laughs> I hated it, but it was what was on at Friday. The world I wanted to watch, right? And we didn't get to choose. And there was some control in that. Like you weren't allowed to show certain topics when kids were watching, right? right parental guidance and what i'm finding is that as these kids and adults are creating a fully autonomous on-demand content world yeah they are basically building worlds where i know people watch fox news all day that think the world's going to end tomorrow that right. are miserable yeah i know people who you know are into constant horror and death and are like you know the most cynical people i've ever met like we are able now because of on demand. And this is why I like, I still like a traditional college, even though I have so many issues yeah. with it is I believe there needs to be something in society. That's not on demand that I am telling you what you need to understand to increase your worldview. And you need to do it right. Like you need to do these things. You need to mm. learn these things. Even if you don't like English or British literature, read this book. Yeah. It's going to expand your brain in this one area. Right. 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 So no, I agree with you. I feel I really, really worry about as our content becomes completely self-selected that we create these worldviews that are inaccurate and unhealthy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So those are the first three. It's a system, not an entity. It's all about adaptation and just understand your social and cultural world is part of that creation. Um, often people don't understand the difference between biology and culture. I mean, we do, but we tend to think biology is real and culture is fake or vice right. versa. Yeah. In, in your physical world, they both are equal contributors. It's the culture that tells the biology what to do, right? So when you have a fight or flight moment, your body gets flooded with arousal. Arousal is different than flee, fight, freeze, fuck, mm. you know, follow. There's a million things we do when we're stressed, Okay. Uh, follow is one of the most interesting ones. Um, but we don't do either of those Fs. We just get aroused at first. And it's a very general arousal. It's like adrenaline and it's cortisol. It's like, we don't know yet what we need, but let's get ready. Okay. And then once we read our situation, our sociocultural environment, then we decide if it's flee or fight or freeze or follow, right? Only after that. And that's why that is such a contributing factor. And then number four, um, you know, I I think that this is pretty obvious and I, but it's funny to me how like I have to push this idea sometimes, but placebos work, period. Like that's mm -hmm. why we're here. If they didn't work, they wouldn't be a phenomenon that anyone wanted to talk about. Like they work, they work so much. They work so much that the FDA and people hire me people like me to go into drug trials to try to pick people who are more placebogenic so we could get the drug passed faster, right? Oh, wow. Like we are trying to beat the placebo system as much as possible because they work too much. And in fact, they work even more. When so they're trying to doctor the clinical trial results to weed out the people that would have the placebo effect. It doesn't matter. We still get a placebo. Yeah. So even, but, but they can lower it by a tiny percent, but they're doing, they're doing everything they can to try to beat that placebo. And wow. we still have it. So that's the thing I want everyone to understand is like this system works. So, yeah. but it's a two way system. So in the church, we used to say a double edged sword, which is hard for some people to understand, but basically think of it like 
um, pleasure and pain. Maybe that's not the right one or hot and cold, or I don't know. You can't, you are always going to be experiencing one or the other. It's very rare that you're right here. Like think of it like your gas tank, okay? It's very rare that you're right in the middle. With the placebo and nocebo effect, you're often on one side or the other. So think about a doctor meeting a patient. Often you're either gonna offend that patient and like kind of put them off, or they're gonna like you and wanna be with you. But very rarely someone leaves a doctor's office like, meh. It's, it didn't mean anything. Like it's very rarely just meh, yeah. right? And when it is that way, we often see that that person has lower social intelligence, right? Or emotional intelligence, or they're able to read less of those micro signals, right? They're not as affected by those. People who are hypersensitive will almost always have an opinion on a person because they've read all those micro symbols, right? So really what I want to do in the future is go into companies, whether you're a doctor, whether you're a TED Talk speaker, whether you're a business or a brand, like you are either going to create a placebo, which benefits the customer or the patient or the listener to your talk, or you're going to create a nocebo, which confuses them or offends them or puts them off. Like you're going but, to- do But either way, the, the SIBO part of it is basically saying, and, and is that like an, is there an etymology for the SIBO part? No. Is it like cerebral? Like No, there is an etymology for placebo, placebo. and nocebo, but no one ever uses SIBO on its own. But okay. That's interesting. Yeah, that's yeah, it. yeah. But 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 so whether it's a, a, a placebo, which is the positive effect, or the nocebo, which means your expectation gives you a negative effect, it's still that power of your own belief, your own or your own expectations about what the outcome is going to be that then influences what that outcome becomes. Exactly. And that's what yeah. we were just talking about. Yeah. So I think people are nocebo-ing themselves a lot with yeah. the content that they're putting in. Yeah. They don't understand, like the way I just talked about anger, right? Same thing with like 24-hour news cycles. These people have to get watches. That's their job to get people to watch their show. Like that's their job. Yeah. So they're going to come up with a bunch of stuff that makes you want to watch. Like if you're constantly thinking all of that stuff is real, you're nocebo-ing yourself. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, because you trust that source and you believe that that source is real. And so it's real to you. So you're yeah. still having a physiological response as if the world was crumbling, the sky yeah. is falling. Right. So I think that's what's happening a lot. So that's kind of my philosophy there. Number four is just, it's going to happen either way. So if something is important to you, whether that's a pitch or a talk or a business meeting or whatever, Really think through each of the, how do I walk? How do I talk? How do I stand? How do I shake? How do I sit? Like each of the, when I go with, with brands, I think through what are the colors? What are the fonts? What are the look? What is the packaging? What is the design? What is the messaging? Every little tiny detail matters. Have you seen the rehearsal on HBO? No. Go watch it and we'll talk about that at another time. On you, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's called the rehearsal. And as you're talking about like being prepared for all of these different variables, you're you're going to be astounded by what you see in this thing. Okay. I'm anyway. excited. Yeah. And there's infinitesimal. There's yeah. so many. Sorry, infinitesimal means small. I mean, there's like uh, exponential. Like there's so. It's infants on thrones. Many. You can use the word infant in any word, and it's gonna. <laughs> 
there's just so many. And anyway, that's my fifth thing. That's my last thing. You know, if you're into Tony Robbins or whatever, and NLP, you can placebo and nocebo yourself all day long. It's not as powerful as when someone else does it that you trust and you don't know it's happening. So that's one of the ethical burdens of the placebo is if I go in and I manipulate you, you don't know what's happening. I'm going to have a stronger effect. But then I, then I just manipulated you and I lied. Right. So that's the issue with with placebos and nocebos, but you can do it to yourself. So I have a good friend who was drinking a lot and she used NLP to basically like, look, think of her wine. NLP, neuro-linguistic programming. I'm certified. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And and some people call it like aversion therapy or whatever. Mm -hmm. And there's, again, this is just one of millions of nocebos. Right. But she would look at her red wine and be like, it's moldy. It's gross. Smell the mold. Right, right, right. Yuck, yuck, yuck. Until she got to the point where now she sees it. She's just like, ugh, who would drink red wine? Yeah. Right. So there are ways for us to do that in both positive and negative. Brain hacking. Exactly. So when you think of of, okay, well, I just learned, that's interesting. Well, what do I need to take away from the placebo? That's exactly what I want you to take away from the placebo yeah. is A, every single thing matters, positive or negative. So I know that stresses you out more, but you know, whatever. Like and number two is you're going to have a placebo anyway, yeah. right? Or you're going to have a SIBO. Let's yeah. say that. Anyway. Yeah, you're going to have a SIBO. Mine will be PLA instead of no. Cool, incidentally, let's fucking make it cool. <laughs> right. Right. If the patient can recover, and like when we get into medical, we have so much more proof than when you get into these other fields. That's yeah. why I love talking about the medical cases. When we get into medical, it's astounding. Like recovery 10 days faster, you know, yeah. 23% less complications. And it's all because we started with a placebo base, yeah. right? Yeah. Which yeah. Is crazy. Yeah. So do, do you, do you have an opinion on like Joe Dispenza? I love Joe Dispenza. I'm do you? And, I'm and Bruce Lipton? Uh, I don't know Bruce Lipton. Okay. The, the, I think Bruce Lipton's book is the wisdom of cells and it's phenomenal, but I, I like Joe Dispenza too, but I know I've talked with people before that they think that Joe Dispenza is just a quack. They're like, He's not, it kind of goes back to that question before about respect. I mean, he doesn't have the female problem, but he's a chiropractor. Yeah. And so people be like, oh, I'm not going to listen to this. This guy's a chiropractor. Well, that's how I feel about Jared Diamond. This motherfucker <laughs> oh, right. is a physiologist. <laughs> Stop writing about, about like Diamond. world cultures, bitch. You don't know about anthropology. Like I have so many issues with him. Yeah. Like, oh, not him. I have a lot of issues with guns, germs, and steels from yeah. an anthropological perspective. Right. Say that. Yeah. Even yeah, the yeah. third chimpanzee. They're like, there's just a lot. Like if you actually are in those fields, you're pissed that this like physiologist wrote these books. You're like, you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yet I love sapiens. Yeah. Right. Because yeah, yeah. that was written from the guy who understands the topic that we both study. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 All right. A- any final words that you want to give to anyone for now, Chelsea? Not final, like like final final but just like just like yeah temporarily final words um well this has been fun and i'm glad you guys have listened and i hope it's helpful i think ultimately at the end of the day that's the part of teaching i really miss doing business yeah is i miss talking to my students teaching them something and then applying it to their lives and actually coming back to class and be like oh my god yeah it just changed my worldview and i did this thing and this thing happened and like oh and it just is so rewarding that part of life was so rewarding 
So if anything I say is helpful, then that's very rewarding. Do, do you have any like daily uh, practices, rituals, things that people could do if they wanted to hack their own brain with the placebo effect and make some positive improvements in their lives? Like what would you suggest that they do? Oh, I have so many. Um, so one thing I do to hack motivation is I try to get, just have a, whatever your timeline is, um, three things before 11, three things before noon, three things before 10, and don't specify what those things are. It could be doing the dishes. It could be doing the laundry done. It could be getting an email done, but it's just get, get the first three things done. And then your productivity and your motivation is already, it's like priming the pump, right? You get rewarded when you do mode a hard thing. So then you get that pleasure response, but you have to do the first three things to get You just that. set a goal for yourself to, I'm going to do three things a day before this yep. time. And then That's once me. you see it, but, but so what if you set that, that goal for yourself and then you fail, does that then have the nocebo effect on it? It can. That's one reason why when I teach coping, I don't tell you exactly how to cope because yeah. if, you, if everyone your whole life has told you to jog and you fucking hate jogging yeah. and I just tell you to jog again, you're going to just hate yourself rather right. than find a new way to cope. Yeah. So for me, it's, you've got to be really careful in the specifics. So, but I just want you to know if you are able to get two or th I would say three, three things done, even if they're small, we're priming that pleasure pump and it's more, it's going to be easier for you to do the next thing. Yeah. Um. The second thing is, and again, I don't know if each of these are placebo-based. We'll have to discuss. That would be an interesting debate. I'd have to do some research. But the second thing is, is your body does not like to make decisions. So paradox of choice. We have too many choices in life today. It's exhausting. And by the end, it actually makes your brain tired. Mm. Um, so think of every choice you have as just like you're lifting weights, right? So by the end of the day, you're tired. So I think the science says 29 choices a day before you start making bad choices. Wow. So what famous people do or what smart people do or what, like why the early bird gets the worm is pretty famous is not necessarily because you're supposed to wake up early. It's because if you have a set routine in the mornings, you don't start your 29 choices till noon or one. Mm. Whereas most people are like, should I go to the gym? Ugh. Should I wear this or this? Oh, should I? Right. So when all of those choices are already determined for you, like Steve Jobs, he didn't have to think about clothes. Right. So that was mm. one decision he didn't have to think about. And so your brain is sharper by 3 p.m., 4 p.m. because you're on your 14th decision. Whereas, you know, mom of eight reception is is on her 80th decision. So by the yeah. time she's home, she's like, I don't fucking care what you eat for dinner. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So limit your choices. Um, another one I like to, and, and, and by, by having a routine, so you, you develop this habit and you don't have to make the choices and you're not expending that energy, making a decision is what you're saying. Exactly. So I yeah. would look at it like, can I make a choice once that lasts forever? And that's hmm. really what my, my, I had an ex who talked about my parents this way is really <laughs> it's really funny to say, make a choice that lasts forever. And then to follow it up by saying, I had an ex. Yeah. Right? An ex. Right, right. What one of my exes make a choice that lasts forever? Not maybe not that choice. I don't always make the smartest choices. I just kidding. They were both great for what they were at the time. That's a way to nice reframe. Well, Margaret Mead was interviewed late in life. She had three husbands. Well, she had two husbands, three husbands, and she was dating Ruth Benedict, and she had a lover, and so she was quite wild for her time. We're talking 1930s, was it? Like I think so. Yeah. She was quite wild. And at the end of her life, I think it was like 80s when, it, you know, it was like all the rage to be 
like a traditional family. She had a tradition, a, a woman interview her and said, how do you talk to about your three failed marriages? You know, mm. how do you talk about that? How do you feel about that? How do you talk to younger generations about your three failed marriages? She said, just very boldly, those were not failed. Yeah. I had beautiful relationships with each of those people. They were exactly what I needed at that time. And then I grew up and moved on. Yeah. And it was just the most confident. And we're talking like 1980s, like early, like women weren't saying things like this, you know? Yeah. So it was just very beautiful of her. Anyway. Um, yeah. I forgot what else you were saying. <laughs> um, wait, well, what you were saying was oh, uh, make one, one choice that lasts forever. And you had oh. an ex that told you. So that, you know, that's what Mormonism is for my family or for, oh, right. for yeah. Mormons, is just make one choice that saves yeah. you from 2 million others. Yeah. And that's kind of how my mom lives more. She doesn't want to talk about it. She doesn't want to research it. She doesn't want to get into it. Yeah. Like, if I just choose X, literally her day is scheduled. What she wears is scheduled. What she eats is scheduled. Who she's friends with is scheduled. Like every decision in her life is done by yeah. making one choice. Yeah. And you know, she's when I talk to her about climate change or when I talk to her about COVID, she's like, oh, God, it's okay. God will take care of it. Mm -hmm. So, like, she doesn't have the same existential worries as us because that one choice. Now, I'm not saying do that. <laughs> Please don't do that. <laughs> right. But I am saying, like, I don't like eating in the mornings, but there's this one thing I will eat. So I bought, like, 500. And I just, from now on, I'm not choosing what I eat in the morning. Like, this is what I eat in the morning. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's those kind of things. Can I make, can I figure out certain hacks where I make the choice once I like the choice and I can just kind of ride that for a while so that that no longer becomes one of the choices I have to make. Yeah. And then the third one, and I'll leave you with this is, and I think it's pertinent to me right now because I am dating is I, when I used to date, it was much more like a job interview. Like, Hmm, what does this guy have? You know, like, is he good enough? Does he, you know, does he have ambition? Is he going to be a good dad? Like I got to look out for red flags and mental illness. Like you're just going into dates, like really kind of evaluating each other mm -hmm. and how to hack dating or relationships in my opinion. And it's not always good, right? It's just how to hack the moment. It's not how to like save a like healthy relationship, mm -hmm. but I like to think of it like steak dances. Okay. How to steak dance. <laughs> you get asked to dance or you yeah. ask someone to dance you or you just sit in the chair on the wall and make fun of the people no, 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 that do. No, I mean, dancing. that's a, that's an experience. That's a valid experience, experience. of attending steak dances. And I can tell you from experience. People, Glenn, no offense. There's a lot of people who are just sitting around, not mm -hmm. dating because they're afraid. Yeah. And guess what? Dating is one of the few experiences where you can get hormonal connections that are better than drugs mm. that yeah. you're just losing out on. Cause you're afraid. A lot of people are like yeah. that. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm talking about the steak dance sitting on the chair on the wall. That and was when I was a teenager. That. You could sit in the chair, but you're okay. missing out on all those yummy hormones. Yeah. I'm sorry. I wasn't holding good space for you. I jumped in and said something no, that I wanted funny. to say. We can Please. also tell jokes. We can also tell. <laughs> We're at the end of the conversation now. Okay. <laughs> but basically, that's kind of my new philosophy in dating is when someone asks you to dance, you try to follow. And I want you to, this is how you can hold space, Glenn. Put yourself mm. in the shoes of a woman who where you're not acting, you're being acted upon. Mm -hmm. in a dating you're like you're being asked you're being led like it's kind of your job to follow right so um is during that three minutes i want to have the best dancing i can 
I want to get to know this person and their unique take on the world. I want to follow as well as I can see if we can create a unique magic of dancing. Like, whoa, I've never danced like that. You've never, like, wow, that's amazing. And at the end, well, I'll see ya. <laughs> like, good luck. I might say yes to another one. I might go dance with someone else, right? Mm-hmm. But for the the period of that date, yeah, like I am there for you. I am there to make you feel good. I am there to follow your lead or you to follow mine. We are there to make each other feel good. We are there to have fun and get to know each other's unique, weird experiences. And if we don't want to be anything more, great. Yeah. We should still both be happy yeah. and not harm each other, right? Yeah. And that type of dating is really fucking fun, right? But that's not- that sounds like the living in the moment versus like this thing has to my future depends on it and you're like way out in the future or maybe even in the past like this has this guy has something like this other person that I did but you're like right there in it and just letting it be what it is and instead of the dance yeah be in the dance yeah and and again I used to get too ahead of myself like oh I can tell I don't really like this guy I don't want to lead him on now I have to pretend I hate it like right and I just used to like be there and I think as you age as you heal as you get more confident now I can have the best day and to be like hey I really like you. I don't feel the right chemistry. Yeah. And this is interesting with women too, because with women, it's really difficult. Do I like you as a friend? Do I like you as more? Like it's hard to tell that balance. And so figuring that out as an adult and being able to be confident enough to be able to say like, I can tell someone I like them as a friend or I like them as a partner and I can handle the outcome of that will make your date be so much easier and happier. And you won't feel like you have to have the outcome before you even experience the real. And it also puts the other people, it's a placebo effect. If I touch your knee, if I look at you in your eyes, if I hold space for you, if I ask you follow-up questions, again, I can tell you each of these ways to placebo. Right. I open you up. I get you to feel safe. I see the best in you. I lower your stress response, right? Yeah. All right. So, so how to, how to puppet master and manipulate your way through dating. That's your second book. That's your second book after the first one, right? I don't want to manipulate people. (laughs) You're just, you're just using the placebo hacks. Yeah. Placebo hacks. Yeah. Placebo hacks, not manipulating, just kind of like, I don't teach anyone nocebo hacks, but there are a lot of guys who do, no offense. There are guys who do like the whole nagging and like, Oh, for sure. Bar, like tell a girl something, go to the hottest girl and then flirt with her friend and then tell her something negative and then she'll want you and call her by the wrong name. Exactly. Like there's all this stuff that's out there in that world. And they are, they're nocebos and they often work, but I as an adult, I wouldn't fall for that shit. I'd be like, I don't really want a partner that says mean things to me the first time I meet them. Yeah. Right? It's more of like a hack to get young girls. Yeah. So. All right. Well, thanks for coming on, Chelsea. It was fascinating. Yeah. I hope we do this more. I'd love Absolutely. it. Absolutely. It's been cool. fun. I really appreciate it. And I was going to say one comment at the beginning. All you right. know, just the way you started out your... um introduction and the respect and the honorifics at the beginning of like, I've learned from you Mm -hmm. meant a lot to me because I remember growing up and watching general conference. And as soon as the ladies were speaking, all the men got up and like got food and went pee and were just like, I don't need to listen to the women. And I remember that affecting me as a young girl and asking, like asking the men in my lives, the, you know, at BYU, like the college kids and like the uncles and dads and like, do you have a female whether that's academic or spiritual that you look up to, that you learn from. And almost every single one said no. Mm. 
And I think that's one of the things of why it's so hard to have a female Neil deGrasse Tyson is we're not used and even you said it, right? We're not used to like holding that type of space yeah. with this type of woman. And to get that from you was is a big deal. And I appreciate well, it. You're you're welcome. And I mean it, I'm sincere. And even in Westeros, among the Targaryens, they wouldn't accept a female leader. Right? Are you watching House of Dragons? No, but I okay. love my favorite depiction of a culture in pop culture um, is the cow. I feel like um, often I, that's my favorite part. Like if I were to create a world, like, let me create the culture. Let me create the clothes, the artifacts that like, I want Are you to talking about Call Drago? Call Drago. Call Drago. Drago. Okay. Call. Yeah. Or what are they called? The what? So anyway, I loved them because um, they had. Dothraki. One, they were the Dothraki. 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 Yeah. yeah. They Am I had not pronouncing one, it right? <laughs> they had one central pillar, which most cultures do, mm-hmm. you know, one central pillar. Like, Amer- I would say Mormonism is like progression, <laughs> you know, like we have Eternal to all progression be in, our, in our celestial glory or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but which is dominance, the mm-hmm. dominant, the strongest, oh, yeah, yeah. Lead, the strongest yeah. leads, period, all the way to the way they died. Mm-hmm. And it never varied. It and that's what I see in a lot of depictions of culture is no one ever portrays it quite as strong as it really takes over our lives. Yeah. Life and death, marriage and divorce, yeah. a ruler and peasant. Like it matters. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like they show that. Yeah. And and I think in other cultural depictions, we often see culture kind of more flimsy and that it can be just, oh whatever, this is what it looks like. Right? This is what it looks like. And it's so much deeper than that. And I think they did a great job of that. Cool. All right. Well, thanks, Chelsea. Okay. Well, thanks for having me. We'll see ya. Put down the weapons that you use against yourself. You don't need them anymore. Lay down the weapons that you use against the world. We don't need another war. Put down the weapons that you use against yourself. Hi, this is Hillary, Matthew, Ryan, Carol, Ashley, and I like to play bingo online while listening to Infants on Thrones. You can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com. And if you really like what you hear, give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. I did. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer? My worst crime is an inside job. Dark thoughts taking over like an inside mob. I tune in to the scene between the eyes. And take a breath. Thank you for listening to Infants on Front. I sit still and watch the thoughts flow past me. Never mind the future, never mind what the past be. I like to jump and let the universe catch me. Three, four, watch the beauty blow past me. I keep my pockets like destination in sight. Keep my actions elevated to compassionate heights. I'm walking past the fight, laying down on such a night. Choosing love when I pick up this mic. So